Hi, I'm Dr. Jeff Tarrant, director of the Neuro Meditation Institute, and you're listening to the Neuro Noodle Network Podcast. Welcome to Neuro Noodles Neurofeedback and Neuropsychology Podcast, featuring our neuropsychologist, Dr. Laura Jansons, Dr. Skip Wren, and neurofeedback legend, Jay Gunkelman. Our goal is to provide information and promote options for better mental health. This is an all-star cast that are more than happy to share their knowledge with you. My name is Pete, and today we have on the show Dr. Jeff Tarrant, director and founder of the Neuromeditation Institute. But before we get to Dr. Jeff, we'd like to thank our Patreon supporter, R.S. Coso. Dr. Laura, do you know R.S. Coso? Uh, I picked up the bottle. My, now my hands are sticky. Now my mouse is sticky. Anyway, yeah, I, I know all about COSO very intimately. And um, it's a prebiotic, postbiotic, uh, gut cleanse. Love it. Good stuff. Helps uh, keep me regular, as they say. So uh, buy some. We like Dr. Laura to be regular and we love gut health, don't we, Dr. Skip? We definitely do, Pete. You know it. <laughs> Hey, check this out. They gave us a coupon code, NeuroNoodle10. What's the 10? Hey, it's 10% off. The link will be in the podcast notes below. Okay, Dr. Jeff, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Hey, it's my pleasure. I appreciate the invitation. It's our pleasure. Please give us uh, uh, your background. Tell us about Neuromeditation Institute, the 411. Our listeners are, are want to hear more. You know, as far as my background, I'm actually a counseling psychologist. That's my background. But very quickly in my career, got interested in neurofeedback. You know, that was probably 1997 or something like that. So those of you listening that are neurofeedback folks, my first system was a big Lexicore giant suitcase of an amplifier that sat under your desk and you didn't dare try to take it anywhere. Um, you were sequestered to your desk. Anyway, so I've been kind of in the neurofeedback world for a while, you know, really more focused on, you know, traditional clinical applications of neurofeedback. Simultaneously was interested in meditation and other contemplative practices, you know, yoga, qigong, tai chi. And so, you know, I spent a lot of years just exploring a variety of things. I kind of knew that these things could go together. That's sort of obvious if you're, if you know any of your neurofeedback history, that's sort of where it all came from. So I knew it could go together and I dabbled with playing around with stuff. And, you know, honestly, for myself, wasn't super impressed and just kind of like dropped it for a long time and just kind of moved on and did other things. Um, and then about seven years ago, really kind of got reignited. And I think part of it was just seeing all of the science, all of the current science, the, you know, the brain imaging studies that have come out with meditation that I think have really changed our understanding of what meditation is and different styles of meditation and how they affect the brain. And so kind of dusted things back off again and started playing around, you know, one thing led to another. And so now uh, that's what I do all day is basically, you know, look at ways to combine neurofeedback with different styles of meditation, specifically for mental health, tying in my, you know, background as a psychologist, it's like, can't help myself. And it's like, okay, that's cool, putting neurofeedback and meditation together, but how can we use this to actually help people? So you started in the 90s. Uh, was that uh, one of those uh, walnut cabinets that uh, Jay Gulkelman always talks about? 
Actually, the Lexicor was one of the early QEG machines, and it was a very inexpensive one as well. As he said, you, you couldn't really travel with it because it had boards that were inserted in sockets. And if you bounced it around, you'd end up having to kind of rebuild it. So it, it, it was an office machine. Uh, it wasn't like the little solid state ones you've got now that you can you know, toss in a backpack and you know, you've got a lab in your backpack. It was hauled around, however. David Stuckey hauled one down to the Amazon to record the first ayahuasca uh, EEGs. Um, and I can't imagine hauling a, a dinosaur machine like that out into the jungle with a extension cords coming all the way from the village uh, to, to be out in the jungle where the shamans are doing their, their ayahuasca ceremony. But that, that's what he did, you know. Um, uh, but, it, it, you know, it, those were the bad old days. Uh, and I go back before they were nicely sized like a big old amplifier for a stereo set. Mine were more like the size of a desk. You know, Grass Model 1, um, uh, Grass Model 3, uh, th those were gigantic and, and tube amps. So, you know, the old days were, were the bad old days, not the good old days. I'm sure Jeff is happy to have set Lexicor aside as a, as a dinosaur piece on a shelf somewhere. Actually, I think I gave it back to David Jaffe at some point. Well, <laughs> David's actually quite brilliant and I, I think has transcended the Lexicor group with his own work now. Dr. Jeff, tell us about uh, the type of clients that come in. What are the major uh, symptoms? I know we hate to label everybody with a symptom, but you know the moms and dads who I represent don't know anything else other than the symptoms. So what are the types of people that come in uh, that you help out? Yeah, I mean, good question. And really, it's it's kind of, I don't want to say typical, but I would say typical for what my practice has always been. So, you know, a high percentage of anxiety and anxiety-based concerns, you know, that seems to be kind of the number one thing. And everybody I talk to, whether they're in neurofeedback or some other form of psychology, anxiety seems to be kind of the thing, right? Which makes sense in the world we live in right now. So I'd say pr predominantly anxiety. And then I'd say second is probably, you know, kind of branching off of that more trauma, PTSD kinds of stuff. Those currently, I would say currently, because things go in waves, you know, I don't know if you guys notice this in your practices, but it's like, you'll get 10 people in a row with head injuries. And then you get like 10 people in a row with depression. And it's like, okay. So right now it's, it's sort of anxiety and trauma. And so, you know, that's where we're really trying to extend some of the work with the, it makes it interesting with the, with the neuro meditation, because one of the things that we are really thoughtful about or try to be thoughtful about is kind of a trauma informed approach and understanding that meditative states and altered states of consciousness can be really triggering for people with a trauma history. Um, if it's, if it's unresolved, and, you know, and if they're not prepared and so really trying to be thoughtful about how we approach that with people so that, you know, they can really benefit without it actually causing more difficulty for them. In my mind, you know, I can, I can visualize what therapy looks like and, and I can visualize what neurofeedback training looks like. And our listeners are, you know, parents and technicians and, and other folks, right? How do you combine those two? What does a typical session look like? Are you hooking folks up? And then talking about things, how's it, how can you walk us through that? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I, I, I do this so much. I just assume everybody knows it's like, oh yeah, we, everybody knows what this is. Right. So yes, in general, pretty much every session we would hook people up, uh, you know, not too dissimilar from a neurofeedback session, you know, most of the protocols that we have. So we have protocols for really 
five-ish different styles of meditation. For most of those, we can do sort of a, a two-channel placement, right? So we're sticking electrodes somewhere on the head. Almost always one of them is going to be back at PZ, you know, kind of sitting right on the, you know, the hub of the default mode network as best we can. And then the other electrode is going to be in various places, depending on what we're trying to capture. A, a typical session often looks like um, an interesting combination of neurofeedback slash meditation. They're meditating while they are receiving neurofeedback intermixed with meditation coaching really is what I would call it because it's a different approach than traditional neurofeedback where a lot of times we're hooking somebody up, putting the information on a screen or there's audio feedback and saying, don't try to do anything. Just let the feedback guide you, right? And this is very different because we're saying, no, I want you to do something. Like I want you to get into a specific state of consciousness. The feedback, the way we're using it, the feedback is not guiding you into that state necessarily. You have to get into the state and the feedback is pro providing sort of a parameter to say, are you there or not? It's a slightly different approach. And so what we find is that we often have to do a little bit of coaching with people because they may or may not understand the task of how to get into that meditative state. Like, where is it? Where do you find it? And what we usually find is that people the biggest problem is that people try too hard, big shock, right? That we're, we're encouraging them to get into a, whatever, a, a mindfulness state. And so they're really efforting to get into this mindful state. And then you add feedback to it, which of course just compounds the issue, right? Now there's feedback and they want the music to play. And so they're efforting even more. So we find that there's kind of a, a semi-steep learning curve at the beginning uh, the first few sessions where people have to learn how to utilize the feedback, but not get caught in it, right? Like not trying to push it. It's almost like a, the way we talk to people about it is like allowing the feedback to kind of float to the background where you're sort of aware of it, you know, but you're not kind of holding on to it, trying to force something to happen. Your technique is an interesting uh, hybrid between Anna Wise's work where it was guided meditation. She looked at the EG data. It wasn't feedback to the patient at all or the client at all. She looked at the EG data, but she guided their meditative uh, state by weaving in uh, various topics to try and influence the EEG. She was uh, a master at it. Um, I don't know if you've ever had a chance to have had met her, but uh, she, she passed a number of years ago now. Meditative state and feedback was almost there with her. She had guided meditation with feedback to her, not to the patient. Uh, but, you know, that's not unusual. Some of the early days uh, for EMG feedback, the, the doctor looked at the EMG feedback and, and told the patient and didn't turn the meter around to actually provide the feedback yet. So your work is uh, interesting. You're uh, doing some work with the divergence group up in uh, Canada as well, uh, trying to provide a home uh, training device um, with a meditative state guidance online mm -hmm. uh, through a device. Uh, feel free to take off with that. Yeah. So, for, you know, pretty much our approach has been using traditional neurofeedback systems, Brain Master and New Mind, things like that, right? Using the systems that are out there. Because really, what the, the type of training we're doing is two channel power training. It, it's not rocket science on that level, right? You know, it's like, it's fairly straightforward. And so, yeah, Divergence is sort of a new software company and that I'm working with. They're working with a variety. Well, the goal is to work with a variety of 
Bluetooth, you know, wireless headsets. Um, and so currently they're working with the Neurosity Crown, which is an eight channel uh, headset and seems to be a really solid piece of equipment. What we're able to do with this is that then people could use this headset at home and the provider could access their data essentially live through the you know, web-based portal and uh, be able to make adjustments and monitor the data kind of simultaneously. That capability is not quite there just yet, but uh, should be soon. And so this is pretty exciting because especially with COVID, right? Like things are kind of challenging and it's hard to have everybody in the office or even being able to give somebody something to do for homework. You know, people ask me that all the time. And it's the nice part with meditation is that it's like, if people can learn how to find the state in the office and we figure out the tools and the tricks that work for them to get into that state, well, they've got something they can practice, right? Like even if you don't have equipment, however, if they do have equipment, double bonus, right? You know, it's like, okay, now, you know, you've got that additional um, information to really kind of help you zone into that practice and get it really clear, really fast, which is kind of what our goal is. I mean, weirdly, like I bet I, on average, I bet I only see people if we're doing neuro meditation, probably 10 times. The goal is to teach them a skill that they can then use at home. Again, if we have some, a, another way that they can access this at home without having to come into the office for every session, to me, that's gold, right? And not necessarily in money, but in value, you know, for myself and for the client. Yeah, priceless for sure. You know, I'm thinking of, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Lori Russell out of Bradley University, but she uh, is actually my mentor, but uh, I, I took uh, her program, I went to her program back in the whatever, the 90s. Uh, it was a counseling, like you said, your background is in counseling psych. And she used counseling psych background also, and it was a master's degree program in counseling psych. Um, but sh what she's done is she's created a hybrid approach toward um, psychotherapy, where she has people uh, with the sensors on and doing literally talk therapy while they're with the sensors and have you know the feedback to you know if we let's talk about your mother and everything lights up like a candle and let's talk about your puppy and everything comes down. So it's you know that direct feedback while they're talking. And so when I'm listening to you talk, it makes me think of her, of course. So the goal is meditation and not necessarily psychotherapy. Or is that a separate part of your business or how does that go? Yeah, interesting. So yeah, I've kind of gotten away from traditional psychotherapy, really. That's not really sort of our orientation. So it's more using this approach um, as usually it's an adjunct for people. Not always. Sometimes this is kind of, they've already done some work. They've already been in therapy. They've done some other stuff. And they're, you know, they're really wanting to kind of fine tune and, you know, kind of develop a practice and a skill for themselves. I mean, everybody knows meditation is good for you. Like that's, you know, if you're in a room of a thousand people and you say, how many people think meditation is good for you? Everybody will raise their hand. You know, if you ask people, how many of you meditate? It's like 5%, right? <laughs> you know, so it's like, everybody knows it's good for you, but nobody does it. And so it's like trying to create a strategy for people to kind of be more engaged with it and sort of understand it. So it's not this esoteric thing, or you don't have to believe something, you don't have to believe anything to help people understand it's really about a, a, a mental state. So yeah, our approach is really much more that angle. Um, so we do work with other therapists and we have therapists in our office and things like that, because of course that's important. The one exception I would say is we've started doing some work with, like I'm, we're working with a, a, a ketamine clinic. And so the doc will send folks to us for preparation and integration sessions before and after the ketamine. 
uh, treatments. And so obviously we're doing a little bit of therapy there, right? Or some counseling or, or, or whatnot. So that's a little bit of a different, that's, I'd say it's the exception uh, mm -hmm. to kind of what we're doing usually. So how do you do the integration, like an alpha theta or something else? You know, it depends on the person. So, I mean, some of the integration is traditional psychedelic assisted therapy type integration, right? Well, helping them to talk about their experiences and make sense out of it and understand it and transform that into some action steps. You know, what are you going to do to actually implement these great insights you've had um, and bring it into the real world? But the other way that we're starting to use neuro meditation and neurofeedback with that if I'm working with them, typically we've done a brain map, you know, QEEG in advance of them beginning the ketamine sessions. And so then afterwards, kind of the idea is that maybe their nervous system is a little more receptive. It's a little more open, a little more flexible after the ketamine. So can we take advantage of that? Either use a neuromeditation or a neurofeedback approach, so add some power to whatever, you know, changes they're trying to make, um, but coming at it more from that nervous system approach. Mental states. So what are you, what are you looking for? Literally, what are you looking for on the EEG to, to know that, Hey, yeah, here's where we need to be and we need to reinforce this. So yeah, that's a, that's a big question. Um, yeah. the, the short answer is, you know, what we did originally was kind of go through the research with EEG and meditation. And I'm sure you guys know that there's mountains and mountains and every day there's another mountain and so it's getting to the point where I can't keep up with, well, it's been that way for a long time that I can't keep up. But so we tried to kind of use that as our base to start from. But then what we've done is actually, you know, like you'll read the, the research literature and just to pick something really simple, right? You know, there's research showing that reductions in gamma in the PCC are connected with specific meditative states, you know, especially things like more like a focus type meditation, things like that, or effortless awareness is the term they'll use a lot of times in those specific research studies. So you've got reductions in gamma in the PCC. So that's kind of a low hanging fruit kind of one, right? That it's like, oh, okay, well, we can monitor that and we can sort of give you feedback on that. And so really what we're kind of saying with that is that there's a reduction of activity in the PCC. Okay, great. And that's going to be common to most styles of meditation, that you don't want to be talking to yourself. You don't want to be creating narratives about your life and what's happening and, and analyzing things. We want to sort of keep that at a minimum. So that makes sense. But then the other issue comes in is like, well, yeah, but what are you doing with your brain, right? What are you doing with your consciousness if you're not thinking about yourself and reflecting on yourself? That's where the other pieces become important, right? So it's kind of like, so with a focus meditation, where directing your attention toward a, usually a single target, right? Your breath, a mantra, an image of the Buddha, whatever, and holding your attention there we need the frontal lobes to actually be engaged to like sustain attention. In addition to quieting down the default mode network, we got to also look at the frontal lobes to make sure they're actually engaged. And so this is, so, you know, that's where those two sensors I'm talking about, right? Like I usually have two things I'm monitoring. So like, that's, that's one simple example, right? Like, well, I want to see what's going on in the frontal lobes, but I also want to see what's going on in the default mode network. Like I need both. And, you know, I learned an important lesson with that at the very beginning of this work for myself. I had a client in my office and I was trying to teach them a focus meditation and they just were not getting it. No matter what I did, it was not working. 
they were really struggling. I'd like to think that it's partially because I didn't know what I was doing, hadn't quite figured out how to coach people yet. But at the moment, I thought I had a brilliant idea. And I said, hey, let's do this. Let's just get rid of the one in the back of the head. Let's just forget about that. I just want you to focus on activating this frontal lobe, right? I want you to be focused. I want you to be directed. That's the only thing we have to do. Don't worry about anything else. So we talked about it. They came up with some instructions. Sure enough, that next session, I'm sitting there watching. And like the gam was just like going, climbing, 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 climbing. And I'm like, what? And I'm like looking at her, make sure it's not like muscle tension or something. You know, her eyes are closed. She's sitting really still, relaxed. I'm like, okay, like what? And I'm over here celebrating. I'm like, yeah great. She's doing it. She's doing it. And so we paused the session at some point and I'm like, you know, I put my therapist poker face on, but so how was that? And I was expecting this glowing report. And she said, that was horrible. I was like, Hmm. Okay. Oh, what was going on? And she said, I could not stop thinking about my sister. She's got these problems going on in her life. And I was just like, totally fixated on all of the problems and worrying about her. And it's like, of course, right? So it's like, there's lots of ways to activate the frontal lobes, you know, so she got fixated and was ruminating, which is certainly not meditation, you know, but if I were also monitoring the back of the head, I would have caught that, right? I would have known that she was engaged in some sort of reflections related to herself. So that's where for me, like you have to look at both, right? To really get a really clear sense. And so this is the part that's tricky is because everybody's different. And so you hook people up, And it's almost like you have to learn their particular pattern and what that means. So usually at the beginning of the session, it will tend to be like a, like, okay, do this for five minutes and I'm watching the patterns and then we pause it. And then we talk about it, right? That's the coaching part. And I'm like, so how was that? What, what was going on for you? And then I'm connecting what they're saying to what I'm seeing with their EEG signals. Right. And so then I can start to modulate that a little bit and go like, oh, let's try it again. Um, this time I want you to do this because it sounds like what you tried last time was was tricky. So let's try this. Let's try something different. And so it's like this back and forth little dance until we get really good at understanding how their brain behaves and what kind of strategies are going to work best for them in order to stay or you know connect with the particular state of consciousness we're looking for. You know, in this case, being focused and not thinking about yourself. And so that's kind of the game, right? That's the game. Usually once we figure it out for the individual, usually it takes about two sessions. Once we figure that out, then it's actually pretty easy um, because we've kind of got the formula. You know, I know how their brain behaves. I kind of know where things belong. They know what they're going to do for their task and we can just jump in and go, right? So then we don't have to interrupt the session every five minutes. Uh, They can just kind of ride it, you know, for, for longer and longer, you know, periods of time. But there's still that reflective part, right? Which actually, uh, you know, honestly, I think is actually half of the benefit is that the discussion that happens, I wouldn't call it counseling or therapy necessarily, but I feel like what we're doing is helping them become more aware of their internal state because of pausing and going like, tell me what was going on there. And so it's like, they become more and more aware of the nuanced internal states, you know, because of that reflection, right? They're, they're, they're having to go back and look again and look again and look again. And what I've noticed is that at the beginning, the first session or two, most people, their awareness of their internal state is pretty poor. But then as the sessions continue, it's like they start noticing, you know, more and more nuances. 
In fact, one of the ways that I know it's time to make the protocol a little bit harder, usually it's around session three or four. Somebody will say, well, that was interesting because, you know, I was doing it and I would notice that, you know, I would kind of have a little bit of a thought, but I was still getting positive feedback, right? And it's like, aha, interesting, right? So it's like, they're starting to kind of catch themselves with these, I wouldn't even call them thoughts, right? You know how when you're meditating and you get like a, I call them like blips, right? There's like a visual blip or like a word blip. It doesn't turn into a full story, but it's just like a, you know, I call it space junk too, right? Like there's just like random stuff floating around in your consciousness. The more challenging you make the thresholds in this approach, the more you're going to catch that, that kind of space junk. So initially we just want to catch the big stories, but then as they get more refined, it's like, we can kind of like get it more and more and more clarified. Um, you kind of burst my bubble a little bit when you said uh, rumination is not meditation. I was like, well, that's, I'm, I'm a master at that. I'm the Dalai Lama of rumination over here. So I guess I got to figure out a different way. So within what you're saying, is that how you kind of, I'm thinking, you know, upside down pyramid, is that how you kind of work within these five styles that you mentioned too, that just to find a best fit again, kind of you know, my language, but is that how you work through it? Do you ever just switch up styles? Hey, this person's better fit for this after, you know, going down a road for a couple of sessions. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that we've done is, you know, and we're still refining this, this idea that depending on a person's goals and needs, there may be certain styles of meditation that may be better in terms of the ultimate goal, right? So again, like picking a simple example, if somebody has problems with ADHD, well, guess what? A focused style of meditation is probably ideal in, ter- in terms of the long-term goals of getting the brain to be able to do what you want it to do. Now, that's also going to be probably the most difficult thing for them to do, So, um, which is also something interesting that we found is that usually the thing that's going to best serve the ultimate goal is the most challenging, which actually makes sense, right? It's like, well, of course, the things that you're good at, well, you already know how to do that. You're good at it, right? So uh, a lot of times what we'll do with this approach is we'll start people with an approach that they're semi-comfortable with and that they can manage. And then we will start to walk them toward whatever style is more challenging or the one that's going to be more connected to their ultimate goals. Also recognizing that some of the distinctions that we make between these five styles are a little bit, I'm not going to say artificial, what we call focus and mindfulness. So those are two of our categories, right? And, you know, we know from lot, you know, lots of other traditions and, and backgrounds that those things kind of go together right? Like, you know, in most meditations, if you're doing a focus meditation, you're kind of going back and forth between being focused and being kind of mindful. You know, you're noticing where your mind goes. Well, that's kind of mindfulness. And then you're redirecting it back to, toward, you know, your target. And then you're recognizing where your mind goes. So it's this little dance of focus and mindfulness. They're, they're kind, you know, it's hard to just totally isolate them and say they're not, they don't, work, you know, they don't exist in the same world, right? It's like, well, of course they do. So for us, it's kind of like, well, what are we emphasizing in this practice? What's the thing that we're most interested in kind of paying attention to? So for, if somebody has concerns with ADHD or some sort of frontal lobe issue or something like that, focus is what we want, right? But we're gonna have to kind of work our way up to that. If somebody has more stress and anxiety, we're going to sort of emphasize more of that mindfulness element, you know, because again, like the way that we think about it is from a mindfulness perspective, really what you're learning to do is step back from 
your experience. You're stepping back from your thoughts. You're stepping back from your feelings. You're stepping back from your bodily sensations, observing them without attachment, you know, are learning how to do that anyway, which of course, even just kind of when you describe that, when you describe it that way, it really is kind of the opposite of anxiety. <laughs> you know, anxiety, we are connected, you know, we're overly connected to our thoughts and our feelings and our bodily sensations. In fact, you know, we're kind of joking about rumination. I mean, it's like, that's kind of what that is, right? It's like an overconnection with your thoughts. You can't let them go. You're kind of stuck in them. A lot of times that's what we're looking at. It's like, well, wait a minute, what's the concern and what's the counterbalance? And how does that counterbalance show up in different meditation practices? And so then, you know, can we target that, you know, more specifically? So if somebody's depressed, right? Okay, well, can we activate positive moods, right? And how does that show up in meditation? Well, gratitude practices or loving kindness or, so that's kind of, that's kind of our approach, right? So we try to kind of individualize it based on the person's, like, why are, why are they meditating? You know, why do they, why are they coming in? And if it's an enlightenment, then I refer them to somebody else. I'm not a guru, so I can't, I can't help them there. You know, but that's what we see is that most people that are coming to us, they're not coming to us for enlightenment. They're coming to us because they know meditation can help with some sort of mental health issue. And so it's like, well, is there a way that we can make that process more efficient? Sounds like a therapy to me. I mean, I've, I've done all that stuff in uh, therapy. I guess I'm trying to get you uh, reimbursed with insurance. Uh, <laughs> That's my question, actually. How, how do you, um, how do you bill? Now we are just, you know, private pay. We're considered out of network. So obviously, you know, in some cases we will have clients that will, um, you know, we'll give them a master bill or whatever, and they'll get reimbursement, you know, that way. Um, I kind of got out of the insurance game uh, when I moved to Oregon. And honestly, part of that was because, um, well, there's, I mean, there's a lot of obvious reasons, but the, the non-obvious reasons are that um, most of the work that I do is actually sort of research and training and that sort of thing. So my, my client work is actually probably only a small fraction of what I do. And so it just doesn't make sense. The work involved with insurance, you know, for, you know, for only seeing five people a week or whatever it is that I see. Sounds like a, a good uh, portion of the dialectical behavioral therapy, right? I mean, most of the things you said can be part of a DBT program. Yeah, actually, I, I think I think this approach could fit in really nicely with you know some of those things, you know, DBT or you know sort of ACT kinds of approaches, right? I think it it could fit in really nicely, and we actually have some some of the therapists that are kind of involved with us are heavy into some of those approaches, and so they're starting to kind of weave it together, right? Figuring out kind of how to do that. You know, one of the interests I have is, you know, thinking about, you know, I was kind of talking earlier about PTSD and it's like, how do we, you know, kind of build this into other, you know, programs or treatments uh, designed specifically for PTSD. I'm sure you guys are familiar with, you know, kind of Ruth Lanius's work, you know, the alpha desynchronization protocol that they've studied and, you know, that they've got some pretty impressive findings in terms of impact on PTSD symptoms and modifying, I guess that's the right word, brain networks that, that seem to be important in, in PTSD. What's interesting, I, I didn't make this connection initially, it took me a minute, that they're doing alpha desynchronization, eyes open. So that's their, you know, PZ, one channel, alpha down, that's the protocol. You read their studies and, you know, in each study it says, basically, we didn't tell the the uh, participants what to do. We just told them make the ship fly through the thing or whatever. 
and you figure it out, right? So kind of old school neurofeedback, right? Like don't try to make anything happen. Just And so in the one study in particular, they said they kind of surveyed the people afterwards, uh, the participants. And I think it was something like 80% said they felt like they had control over the feedback, right? But that's pretty good when you're basically giving them no, no instructions. And then they followed up and asked them, what did you do? What did you do to sort of control the feedback? And what, what they all describe is basically visual attention, you know, external focused attention is the strategy that, that they were essentially using. And it's like, oh my God, that makes perfect sense. Like that makes perfect sense. It's like, huh, basically it's a focused attention practice um, with eyes open. And it's like, okay, how did I not make that connection? So I'm really interested in, so I've been doing more of that, right? Like, well, why don't we just have people do that, right? Uh, with, with the neuro meditation, if they have trauma-based things. The double bonus is that a lot of times with people that have a trauma history, if we're concerned about, you know, kind of blowback with getting into some of these states, we want them to do an eyes open practice anyway, right? Because sometimes the eyes closed going inward can stir up a lot of stuff. So it's actually perfect. You know, I can start to see where some of these things are going to intersect, right? And we can sort of like build it out into some, some I think, pretty innovative programs. It's very good to hear that you're not trying to give everybody enlightenment and you're not claiming that uh, after a week's worth of training, they're going to be a Zen master or um, uh, transcended something. There are folks who make such claims. So it's, it's good to see that that's not the basis of what your, your work is. If you roll back time to the 60s and early 70s, the EEG of meditation was all alpha. Maybe a little bit of theta, but it was pretty much all alpha. There wasn't any discussion of gamma. Well, pretty much nobody was talking about gamma then. It, it was rudimentary EEG correlates. Nowadays, uh, Richard Davidson's lab uh, receiving the Dalai Lama's monks to study, uh, they, they found that gamma was so critical uh, to, uh, for the advanced meditative state. Uh, people are looking at cross-frequency coupling between theta or alpha and gamma. Many, many people now are looking at advanced type training of these cross-frequency coupled rhythms uh, uh, to, to try to assist in augmenting meditative expertise, even in people who are pretty advanced meditators. Any comments about the future and cross-frequency coupled uh, training and that sort of thing? Maybe, maybe, maybe I have a comment. Uh, our approach, my approach, for whatever reason, well, for various reasons, right? I've, I've tried to keep it really simple. And, and this is the dance that I, that I'm, I feel like I'm always playing is, you know, wanting to overcomplicate things um, because there's so much interesting information out there. And so it's like, oh, let's do this and let's do that. And, and then when I try it, it it's like, eh, mm. so it's kind of like, what's the simplest solution to help people feel these states, right? So that's kind of been what I've continually struggling with. The little bit that I know about the cross-frequency coupling with meditative states is very cool and very interesting. You know, really, I haven't really explored that too much, mostly because I wouldn't know how to get the system to do 
do it the way that I think would be effective. And I know there's people out there that have done that, right? You know, the think of the guy's name that's got the tag thing, or maybe he called it calls it something else now. I can't remember. You know, but that's what he's doing, right? I mean, he's doing like a cross-frequency coupling thing, or at least that's my my understanding of it. Yeah. You know, the people that have kind of tried it and worked with it seem to really like it, right? You know, like I think he's onto something there uh, for sure. My guess is that my sort of simplified approach while it works great for kind of what we're doing over time, I think it's going to get much more complicated. And in fact, it'll probably be replaced with AI, right? Like we'll probably have ways that, that kind of figure this out for us, you know, and kind of take all of this, all of this work out of it and, and make it much more streamlined. Um, And so, you know, I've got sort of like mixed feelings about that. Right. And probably because it's kind of like, geez, like do all this work. And then one day it's like, I'm going to be replaced by a robot, which, you know, (laughs) Uh, but I think, you know, and even though the, the software may, you know, become more sophisticated, be able to take the place of some of this, this work we're trying to do, figuring out the ideal brain waves and the ideal locations and how to kind of work with that. I think there's always going to be a place for, you know, the human element, right. In terms of the coaching part and helping people understand. And for me, that's, that's really important is that, to me, it's different, you know, kind of blasting the brain into a specific state, I think is different than learning how to get into that state. I think there's something different that occurs in that process. And so I'm not opposed to blasting your st- your brain into a certain state. I mean, you know, go for it, right? You know, that's that's fine. But it's not the same as learning how to get there yourself. And I think that that, that skill is really important and valuable. You know, hopefully that'll, that won't go away, right? Hopefully the people will still value um, learning how to do that. So I didn't directly answer your question, Jay, but maybe you can, uh, help me come up with some more advanced algorithms or something, right? That's sort of like out of my pay grade. Uh, Douglas Daly's attacked uh, uh, theta alpha gamma work kind of was a trigger. Uh, there are other people that do the same kind of thing. I think they try to use a different acronym, but it's basically the same kind of work. Um, you'll see the, the neurofield group uh, uh, doing cross-frequency uh, uh, type training. So uh, it's becoming uh, kind of a leading edge of, uh, of things. But one thing about the leading edge is quite often the bleeding edge. You know, it, uh, um, you're, you're, you're trying all these new things and that's where all the carnage is, you know. So overpay for the things that you buy and, and uh, uh, by the time it's actually got the kinks knocked out of it, it's less expensive and more readily available. And, but the, the, the kind of the leading edge is still, still a wild west out there. Uh, undoubtedly, you'll end up with some of that uh, at some point, but um, you're right, it is complex. The theta, alpha, gamma stuff is also uh, cross-frequency coupled to the infra-slow frequency content. And, you know, the cross-frequency stuff is uh, very complex. We're uh, we're using uh, cross-frequency coupled uh, theta and gamma uh, to actually identify locations um, that need to be re- you know I- improved. Tinnitus, pain, Parkinsonism, and depression all have thalamocortical dysrhythmia, which is a theta gamma coupling. The phase of the theta and the amplitude of the gamma are coupled. And that basically is a, it, uh, creates a target for uh, TMS and other stimulation uh, type training, uh, stimulation, not training, but 
but uh, the treatments. The, 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 actually, it's a patented protocol um, for TMS. Uh, I, I've urged people to go ahead and violate the patent because if you patent a, a therapeutic out, uh, a therapy uh, that how how should I pay you a royalty for me doing therapy on my client? The, those uh, those patents fail on challenge. Seventy five percent of the patents fail on challenge. I've I've been accused of inciting to riot on that. I, I told him sue me. <laughs> you know, so uh, th these advanced techniques are out there. Uh, there are people that have tried to control them. You know, patenting the approach, but um, again. Uh, the, those kind of patents just are foolish. I appreciate your uh, your dedication to this, the science of EEG and meditation. That you're you're solidly working with clients to their betterment. It, it's a solid leg up over the people who are trying to uh, collect thousands and thousands of dollars of dollars to uh, tell people that they're going to be a Zen monk in a couple of weeks. So you, you've got realistic outcomes. Uh, you're not overclaiming. And um, I, I appreciate that. Kind of a reasonable segue from what Jay was talking about. And, and it is a, a leading edge kind of question. I think just comment wise, I, it's pretty cool uh, on the show to, to meet with folks and talk about things that are going on, certainly within neurofeedback world, EEG world, but also some other things that they're uh, aware of. So with that said, can you give us a thumbnail about this ketamine assisted psychotherapy what's 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 all that about i mean probably most people are kind of aware of a lot of the research coming out with different you know psychedelics in terms of you know psychedelic assisted therapies psilocybin in particular and mdma have gotten a lot of attention for you know for ptsd for depression for obsessive compulsive concerns for addictions all kinds of stuff showing really good results, you know, and kind of the format that they kind of come up with MDMA, uh, I think maps really was the ones who really kind of like nailed this down really well, this kind of process of having some preparation sessions uh, in advance of using the medicine, and then, you know, some integration sessions afterwards. So it's not just a one shot thing. It's not just taking this powerful medicine, and then you're done. That's kind of the end of the game, right? In fact, I think they're even seeing that now, even with psilocybin, if you have multiple sessions spread out over several months and you've got the kind of the therapeutic aspect kind of happening alongside it, the effects are even more uh, impressive in terms of therapeutic outcomes. So ketamine has been around for a long time. And of course, you know, most people know it as a horse tranquilizer. Um, it's interesting because what they've found is that if it's used in a therapeutic context, uh, and used appropriately. And there's several different administration routes. It's actually got really impressive antidepressant effects. So they're using it with treatment resistant depression is the kind of the primary way that it's being used in this context. And so basically, you know, there are training programs now for medical providers. You, have, you know, obviously you have to be a medical provider in order to, to, to access, administer ketamine. Uh, you know, so now there's training programs out there. There's clinics opening up all over the place where they're kind of offering this, right, in, in different formats. In some cases, they're even prescribing something that the client can take home and do at home or take and go do with their therapist, um, like a sort of a low dose, you know, inhaled version or something like that. Um, but a lot of the clinics are using IV or IM administration and inducing these really big, powerful, you know, kind of mystical states. 
And that seems to be one of the, the keys that makes a difference with, with all of these medicines is that if people have a, a, a mystical experience of some kind, and I'm using that kind of loosely, that is correlated with positive therapeutic outcomes. So it's like helping, you know, kind of that's where the preparation becomes important as well, right? Like, can you help people to be open, to be receptive, to kind of learn how to get the most out of this experience? If people go in with a bad attitude or they're skeptical or they're, they're anxious or their defenses are so strong, it's likely to be a difficult experience and you're not going to get as much benefit. So can you use the preparation to help people, you know, prepare to get the most from the experience? Then after the experience, you know, kind of taking, again, like, kind of like I was saying before, right? Taking advantage of that plasticity that all these medicines seem to create so that you can kind of advance the therapeutic work. I think the mistake and, and I think we're already moving away from this. I think the mistake is seeing these medicines as a magic bullet that, you know, you, you take, you know, a big dose of psilocybin and somehow it, it cures everything. You hear stories about that happening. Okay, fine. But it's rare. Usually people have a big experience. And if there's no follow-up after a couple of weeks, they're right back to exactly where they were doing the exact same behaviors, living the same exact same lifestyle. You know, it's like, you have to kind of wrap it in, you know, other therapeutic services to really get the full benefit. Dr. Jeff, we haven't even talked about your book. Could you please just give us a wet our whistle on, on that one so we can at least get you a few hundred book sales from this uh, podcast? Sure. Yeah. So the book's called Meditation Interventions to Rewire the Brain. It is, and just to be fair, and I need to say this, so it does talk about the four different primary styles of meditation, gets into some of the science, has some different practical exercises and things like that does talk about technology, different technologies, uh, EEG, uh, biofeedback, audiovisual entrainment, et cetera. But it is not designed as sort of a, a manual or a guidebook for kind of combining neurofeedback with meditation. It's more designed uh, in, for a broader population. So I just want to put that caveat out there so people don't think that it's somehow, you know, the instruction manual, they'll be sadly disappointed. And the uh, best way to learn more about uh, your company, uh, the website, neuromeditationinstitute.com. That's it. That's the place. We'll have the link to your book and to your uh, website in the podcast notes. Dr. Jeff, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah. Hey, thank you, guys. It was fun. I appreciate the uh, opportunity. All right. We thank you all for listening to Neuro Noodles, Neurofeedback, and Neuropsychology Podcasts. Uh, again, we'd like to thank our Patreon supporter, Ars Coso. It's the only 100% natural supplement on the market that provides balanced nutrition, combining probiotics and prebiotics, postbiotics, and enzyme, which has proven to improve gut health. Right, Dr. Laura? Yes, sir. And supporters, don't forget, they're, they're giving us a 10% coupon code, NeuroNoodle10. That'll be in the podcast notes. The contact info for everyone is located in the podcast notes. Do you have an idea for a topic? please email Pete at neuronoodle.com or leave us a voicemail with the link in the podcast notes below. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Smash that like button on Facebook, Instagram, and follow us on Twitter. And again, hey, if you really like us, buy us a coffee and Patreon slash Neuronoodle. We love our Patreon supporters. Cue the music. 